The First Tee with Robbie Greenfield and Zane Scotland. Brought to you by the DP World Tour, the race to Dubai. Welcome to the First Tee podcast with the DP World Tour, hosted by myself, Robbie Greenfield, and the man that holds all of this together, Zane Scotland. Coming up, we're welcoming two-time DP World Tour winner Jordan Smith onto the show. We'll be reflecting on those milestone wins with him and finding out what strategies modern players employ to make those marginal gains. We'll discuss the potential return of a man known as Golf's Yeti, such as his reclusive status, and I'll be getting Zane's thoughts on amateurs winning on the tour, plus one or two updates of some heroics of his own. Welcome then to another episode of the First Tee Podcast with the DP World Tour. I say a warm hello to my golfing hero, Zane Scotland, joining me in studio. How are we, sir? I'm very well, thank you, Robbie. Very well. Talk to me about a certain round of golf you had with a certain former race to Dubai champion, Ryder Cup hero, Tommy Fleetwood. Yeah, that's right. Just uh, what day before uh, yesterday got to play golf at Jamira Golf Estates on the earth course with Tommy Fleetwood which was just yeah a really good little day um friend of our T-Jan kind of texted me and said do you fancy playing golf tomorrow uh, I was thinking yeah that sounds good you know with uh, Tommy Armour the third who's a ex-PJ Tour player who I know already and uh, and Tommy Fleetwood and yeah you don't you don't get the call we don't get those messages very often, do no, you? So that no. was like a... I, I had, never get them, but I, you know, you've I hadn't, even, <laughs> hadn't even looked at my diary to see what was on. I just said yes. You know, you just you take those opportunities. You they move come. things around for that, don't you? Exactly, exactly. Okay, so you, t- you took to the earth course. You, you played off the competition tees with Tommy. Um, talk to me about what happened. Yeah, we had a, we had a lovely day. We, did, we didn't play the back-back tees. We played the competition tees, as you say. And we had a, a doubles match and we had a, a game. And... Yeah, and we had, we had quite a tussle. Not, not going to lie, I was actually very pleased. Sometimes when you play with good players, like you kind of zone in a little bit more, don't you? And it means a bit more. We had a really great day, and I was able to get it around about 67 shots. In about, okay. In about, yeah. six, I don't want to say about, it was 67 shots. <laughs> it was six, 67 shots, blows, yeah. yeah, that's solid. That was great, and uh, the, highlight being, the, the highlight being the 15th hole, where we, uh, which is a par four up the hill, if anyone knows the earth course, and I hit my, you know, really went after one, my best tee shot of the day and able, was able to get it onto the green. It was a front-ish pin. How far was it playing? Drove the green. It was, let's say it's playing 320, uh, yeah, about 315, 320. I snuck it onto the front okay. to about 25, 30 feet. Like, and it didn't leave the pin. And I was like, you know, and we'd halved every single hole. We'd halved 14 holes in a row. And then I knocked it on the green first up. Like, oh, I've got him here. Yeah, I'm all over this. And then just in a real... You know, I guess he, he must have um, pulled on some some memories of the 16th at the Ryder Cup. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking that. And he literally just hit this drive. It Probably was, felt a bit more pressure against you. A wee bit, a wee bit, yeah. Um, exactly that. And he just hit this, this laser. And the thing, this thing just did not leave the pin. It was such an impressive drive off the back of me hitting a good drive. And he hit it in at about 30, you know, just a, a few paces further away than I was. He then proceeds to then roll it in for a, for an eagle too. So uh, is, this, is this guy joking? But I did actually hold it on top you of him. You followed him in. I followed him in. Oh, wow. So we had 15 halves in a row. And we halved that hole in eagles, which is fantastic. And wow. Then, uh, we end up, uh, there was no blood. There was no money exchanged hands at the end of the day. Uh, we had a magic round. And uh, yeah, it was, it was really good. But at that point, he, he showed a bit of curiosity as to your current status, didn't he? <laughs> he did, yeah. We walked off. He hadn't really, you know, we've just been <laughs> chatting about all manner of things all day. You know, he hadn't really asked me any questions about my own golf. And then we, as we were just putting our driver in the, in the bag, you know, as you do on different golf carts, he said, oh, Zane, so, so where are you playing? Are you, are you playing much these days? And I was just like, this is my opportunity that I've just matched, you know, the, the, what the 10th best player in the world 
toe-to-toe, shot-for-shot. Nah, I just, I just coach these <laughs> days, mate. <laughs> yeah, professional golf bores me. <laughs> Frankly, I suck. Not up for it. Uh, <laughs> Brilliant, yeah. amazing. But yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it, it was. It, you know, we 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 were fortunate enough to watch him uh, win at the creek, and uh, and sit and see that all unfold. To play alongside him, and you know, n- to pit your game against somebody and see where it, where the levels are. Yeah, off the tee, did he have you by a few yards? Yeah, he did. Like if I. Because I've not got many big drives in me, so when I really went after one, I'm about the same same length as he is. Like we, when I, I had to go really go after it to drive that par four. He hit a good drive, right? Um, but he, he gets everything out of each shot. So like, he just um, it was like a procession of high, tight draws mm. every single shot, and the ball comes out the middle of the club face, and he you know hits like and it was like the middle of the fairway each time. You know, just the start the style of golf that he plays. When you get to watch it one to eighteen, it's quite unique. You know, a lot of the pros move it left to right. He doesn't. He just has a really good functioning goal swing, and the ball does exactly what it's supposed to do. And it was, yeah, it was. And it you, was were good. Impre- you were impressed by his own knowledge of of a his swing and b of other aspects of the game. He's quite a student of the game himself, Tommy. Yeah, very much so. We so so Tommy Armour. He's he's been playing on he had played on tour for years and years and years. And uh, we're going to come to it uh, shortly. But the PJ Tour event last week was. Um, the one that in the it used to be called the Bob Hope Classic. It's now called the Amex. And Tommy Armour was like, I, I played in the Bob Hope in 1982, which was like the year that I was born, 41 years ago. And he's got so many stories and worked with all the coaches and knows all the great players. And you know, he's played golf with Trevino and he's practiced with Hogan and so forth. And Tommy t- took like a real interest in like finding out. You know, I really think you know. He's like, I've always said that to- Lee Trevino has been one of the best ball strikers, and now people, you know, now people are, are kind of realizing that. And what was Hogan like? And what did he do on his chipping? He was like a real, real student, and he had a good knowledge of players that gone past. And he, you know, you could tell. You know, talking, he was talking about Mac O'Grady, and uh, got to. And I, I couldn't help. But I had to ask him. You know, what what have you worked on with Butch? What what's he been to work like to work with? Because he works with Graham Walker on his short game. Right. Went to Butch beginning of last year, and his game's turned around. You know, Butch. Harmon's Butch is very old school, touch. isn't he? I mean, Butch is. You know, from what I've seen of his, I've actually had a lesson from Butch have all you? the way back in two thousand and four. Wow. When I worked for a golf magazine back in the UK, um, but you know he is—he believes in playing golf as a part, as opposed to teaching golf swing—is is what I've always understood of his method of coaching. Yeah, very much so. I mean, Tommy did say he was like kind of we were—he was talking about what he worked on and so forth, and and Tommy Armour had said to Tommy Fleetwood, "Yeah, you know, what do you think of Butch?" And he said, "He said, well, actually, I spoke to Bob Rotella. So Bob Rotella is quite a, a very decorated, amazing sports psychologist. You know, very well known." He said, I spoke, I spoke to Bob Rotella, and he said, the thing about Butch is, he's never effed anyone up. And obviously he used the actual word, you know, in, in, yeah. that, in that setting. But, and, and that and was like, well, yeah, fair enough. And, and the things that he kind of has got Tommy to do, oddly enough, are not, they're not like groundbreaking moves, but, you know, he, he sees him every now and again, and he's happy that that's what he told him, that's what he works on. And he kind of got him from a bad spot where he felt he was underneath it and he was drawing it too much. And now he hits the ball much tighter with a, instead of a 15, 20 yard draw, it's like a five yard draw. And, you know, and, 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 and the way that Butch delivered it to him was very, very like simple. It wasn't like, it's not like a, didn't break. He kind of gave him, this is what your swing does. You do, you do this on the backswing, it makes you do this at the top. So that makes you do this on the downswing. So it just makes you do that at the start. And then, and then basically turn your chin towards the target on the way through. And, you know, that's, he, he was able to explain what Butch got him to do in you know 
while someone else is hitting a shot. Well, that's basically. it. It's, it's about making it very understandable and very accessible as well. Um, you don't want to confuse anyone, that's for sure. And yes, yeah, so it's a real art form being able to explain complex things in the most relatable and understandable and, and very simple way, I guess. Yeah, very much so. And what was interesting, and Tommy being a student of the game and liking all the technique and liking all the details, he's gone to Butch, he's giving something really, really, really simple, almost what you would tell a, you know, a, a 15 handicapper, but because it's Butch Harmon, you just accept it. You don't, you don't, try, you don't need to dig any further. It's just like, we're, it's, it's like the famous DJ quote, that's what Butch says to do, so that's what I do. <laughs> that's what I do. It's as simple as that. So you've been knocking around with Tommy Fleetwood and Tommy Armour the third, Zane. Uh, amazing stuff. I have to admit, when you, uh, when you said you'd shot 67 in the company of Tommy, who also shot 67, my first thought was, Zane needs to find a route back on tour. He needs to do an Anthony Kim. Um, <laughs> did it cross your mind thinking, oh, Mate. okay. There's, that, that, when you do that, that must, even in a, a friendly knock, you you must start to feel uh, there's a bit more mileage in this old tank. Yeah, it's it's in there. Yeah, it's exactly that. Like it's the day to day. You know that that's the part of it. Is when you see the, all these top players, they're just so sharp, and you know they they do that those sort of rounds at a complete canter without even which Tommy did. You know without really having to think about it. And it is it is quite nice to go and play with a fantastic player who's obviously in form and kind of like you know not mess up and embarrass yourself and kind of hold your own. It is like a, it is a nice thing, and yeah, and, and I'm like any golfer. You still think, yeah, maybe it's in there. If yeah. I can find the route back, if I can find the route back, maybe that's the way. Well, I played nine holes for the first time since my my seventy, and uh, very first tee shot, I hooked it and never saw it again. <laughs> <laughs> and I would proceed to shoot, I think, six over for the nine yeah. holes. And obviously, golf has a wonderful way it's of nice, bringing you back down nice to earth, doesn't it? Slapping you in the yeah, face. It really it? does. It's the cruelest <laughs> sport in that way. Uh, I want to ask you about Anthony Kim and the headlines that I've woken up to about his potential comeback to pro golf. According to golf.com, for more than a decade, says golf.com, he's been golf's yeti. Uh, the most famous recluse, golf's man of mystery, the greatest what-if. As the years have ticked by, stories from his abridged career have been told and retold with increasing levels of admiration and exaggeration. His cult hero status has continued to grow, yet we've heard basically nothing from him since 2012. 12 years ago, nearly, Zane. Um, In terms of what he achieved as a player, he was the fastest uh, under 25 since Tiger to two wins on the PGA Tour. He was the first player to pick up three wins on the PGA Tour before the age of 25 for 30 years. Um, And of course, he starred in that famous Ryder Cup at Valhalla where he he thrashed Sergio Garcia in the single. I mean, Anthony Kim, what do you remember of him? And and, uh, the guy's 38 now. What a a bizarre thought that he might be making a re-entry into the world of pro golf. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? He was so exciting. You know, he was a bit of a... He was probably a... He was a bit of a Patrick Reed kind of character in terms of he just was happy, more than happy to go against the grain and just do things his own way. I mean, probably in 2008, 2008, maybe 2009, I remember going to uh, Korea for like a European tour event. And there was a, um, we went to Malaysia the first week and then across to Korea for the next event. And he had arrived and he had like, he had a bit of an entourage with him. He had his boys with him and they were like, he was playing and then he was going out to dinner and he had a, you know, had a, 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 a girl who was like, following them around, you know, a very beautiful girl following them around. He was kind of living this kind of party boy lifestyle and they all had like AK like, diamond encrusted <laughs> and the fancy belts on with a big belt buckle cap which is what he was quite famous for. And he was a bit of a rock star in golf really at that point. You know, being that young, was a winner, 
as you said, like took down Sergio. It was a low bar, let's face it, who was, to, well, to, to achieve rock star status yeah. in the world of golf. In golf, yeah. The white belt. <laughs> he, he was he was heading up the white belt brigade. Basically, he was the he was the leader at that time. And then yeah, and then he bashed up Sergio in in the Ryder Cup. And and, and Sergio's been our our guy who's been been the guy who's out there and was able to. You know, was kind of seen at the time as like the tiger beater. And well, then that now was we had that was two thousand and eight. Was basically Sergio's pomp. I mean, mm. I know he won the the Masters, obviously, some years later. But um, in terms of his actual kind of playing prime, I would say two thousand and seven, eight. He made the playoff against Harrington at Carnoustie. He came up against Harrington again in the PGA Championship. That's where it. That's the, those were the years where he was always there or thereabouts in the mix. Yeah, he was. It was right there. And can and can you remember Anthony Kim's goal swing? It was a fantastic goal swing, wasn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. It was very, very mod. In a, in a way, it was ahead of its time. It was, it was resembling the swings of today that you see. Very yeah. powerful, move um, fast, really yeah. fast snap speed. A lot of yeah. club head speed. Um, hit the ball a long way. Yeah, really intriguing to see. Uh, I mean, first of all, at thirty-eight. He actually, um, we last saw him at the Wells Fargo in in twenty 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 twelve. He withdrew from that event after the opening round, citing an injury. It was his third consecutive WD. And then he basically just disappeared off the face of the earth. And apparently what's keeping him away is this stipulation due to an insurance um, policy, which is worth about $10 million, which would be voided if he returns to competition. And I think what he's trying to ascertain is, can I make that money coming back into golf? And he obviously wants to come back to golf, that the headlines have been kind of rumbling in the background for a while. They've now, it's now been quite widely reported that he's very keen on a comeback this year. Uh, 38, first of all, what would you expect from him, having been in, in injury ravaged, really, in his, in his earlier part of his career, having been inactive for a, a dozen years? And also, you know, what kind of, uh, I suppose, level of performance do you think, or where do you think he would be best served in terms of cropping up and re-emerging? Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Like the you kind of hear stories like through the grapevine coming through. You know, it's, it was an early one. A friend of mine, um, a friend of mine went to the same college as he, uh, as he, a lot of his close friends, and they were. And they, this is just a story, but they they they've gone out. They were in uh, where was he living? It was in Dallas. So he's, got, he's in Dallas, and he, I, I said to him, "Do you ever hear from Anthony Kim?" And he was like, "Well, yeah. Funny enough, we've been with him recently." He said he still plays a bit of golf, and this was this would have been, you know, twenty ten, twenty eleven, man, that sort of time. He still he still plays he play, still plays a bit of golf, but he's got a white he's rolling around. He's got a, uh, he's got a white uh, Maybach with white rims, living on top of the Mondrian Hotel, just partying basically. Just has all his boys. And he said he said we we got into his nightclub, all partying, having a great time. And he said we, he wanted to keep on partying, so he's got a jet, and he took a jet, and they flew to Vegas just to keep the night going, basically. So he was just kind of having it, just and then. Post and then post that, there was all the chat that he was still playing golf, and uh, there was a, a couple of swings that kind of uh, came out of the woodwork about five, six years ago, of him on a range somewhere, you know, on a nice, you know, desert kind of background, you know, swinging it as pure as ever. So the chat, you know, I don't know if uh, this is not like gospel, but you know, he's he's been playing golf since he just can't compete professionally. So you would kind of think that he's, you know, if that's the case, he can still play, he can still. He can still hold his own. He can still hit the ball far enough. So that part of it won't be much of an issue. It would just be the fact that he hasn't played a proper tournament for a certain amount of time, which, you know, as as you found out after shooting your amazing one under, when you come back, it's a bit different, isn't <laughs> it? It's tough. But two under, Zane. Two under. Two, two under, sorry, yeah, 70. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> but yeah, but it's just that you know, maybe take a few events to get back into it. it you know, everything for someone like Anthony Kim, it sounds. You know, where where will he start out? You would imagine it maybe would he start small and just ease his way back in on, on a development tour? Maybe I'm pretty sure any tour out there, uh, whether it, where you know DP PGA tour live wherever it would be, any tour Corn Ferry would be happily have a spot available for Anthony Kim to come to yeah, up in the I, field. I suppose the problem with these kind of the mystique surrounding him is it's got to stay that way. And if he turns up and starts shooting consecutive rounds of 74, the, the kind of allure mm. of, of his name is quickly going to evaporate. And the reality is going to be... I always think it's like, it's like bands that you know, were brilliant back in the 90s. Oasis being a case in point. You know, if they ever got back together, I think that would be a really bad idea. Yeah, yeah. You know, let, let, let them just stay. Let Noel and Liam like, stay argumentative and unable to collaborate with one another because we we, we don't want anything to ruin, ruin that, that kind of halcyon view of Oasis mm. in the 90s in their prime because I don't think it would be the same you, you know be. it's hard to like recapture past they're, glories like that they're with Anthony Kim like, the, almost the allure <laughs> is like but, but he's the type of guy he might come back out and just yeah. get, start winning again straight away and pick up where he left off yeah and I don't know I'm and, not sure how that playboy lifestyle would work for well, a 38 year old kind of injury ravaged guy <laughs> kind of known for his like, attitude wasn't he like he had this like kind of uh, like a, an arrogant way about him like a very like very overly confident way about him and then, and then but then backed it up, so it was like, okay, yeah, fair enough, no problems. And you kind of, you hope that he's still got that. You hope that he comes back in with that, because maybe that would carry him through. If he comes back in all humble and nice, it, it won't be no. the same, won't no. be the same, like, He alert. needs to be driving that white Maybach <laughs> up to the, and, and parking it in Rory McIlroy's car parking spot. Exactly That's that. what he needs to be doing. Exactly that. Uh, right, let's welcome in our special guest for today's podcast on the first tee with the DP World Tour. Delighted to be catching up with the 31-year-old two-time winner on tour, Jordan Smith, a man who has done it the hard way. He's come up through the Euro Pro, then onto the Challenge Tour. He won the Challenge Tour up in Rasselkheimer, the order of merit there, the road to Rasselkheimer. That was back in 2016. And subsequently, he's had quite a few successful years on the DP World Tour has become an established force on that tour with two wins. You know a bit about this guy, Zane. You, you've actually have you played against him before? I played. I actually played Q School with him uh, the first stage when he uh, when he first turned professional, and he's a very impressive golfer. Like he, I think mate, let's say he came fifth at the qualifying at the first stage there, and I played with him for the first three rounds. We got paired together, and he missed everything. Like, but T to green, you know, I'd been a, a pro for quite a while. You know, relatively established in terms of what it's like to be at Q School and people being nervous and so forth. And Jordan Smith was like, it's amateur coming out. And you think, I wonder how he's going to respond to this. And he was T to green. He was absolutely fantastic, and he he's definitely carried that on. And then he, he's now a member at Wisley in Surrey, where I'm a member. You know, see him up there working with his coach. Uh, who has a very interesting name for a golf coach, Simon Shanks. <laughs> yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, and they're described... Quite unfortunate. In a w- <laughs> I'd change my name if I were him. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, but and they continue their work and he's, yeah, you know, you've, you've seen him hit balls. He's, he is arguably one of the best ball strikers on tour. He's certainly in the top five. Yeah, no doubt. And, and it's interesting, his career, very steep upward trajectory. So he, made, he won on the Euro Pro. He then won twice on the Challenge Tour. And then quickly after he gained DP World Tour status, he won there as well. He won the Porsche Europe- European Open in 2017, uh, which we'll talk about in this chat. And then 2022 with a score of 30 under. It would have been a tour record were it not for the fact they were actually using preferred lies, which again, I'll, I'll ask Jordan about in this conversation. He won the Portugal Masters. Um, and I think 
what's interesting about this chat is to where he's at now, 31, he has aspirations of being a Ryder Cup player. He has aspirations of, of taking his game to the next level. How is he going about doing that? Let's get into this conversation now. I asked Jordan how he reflected on the past 12 months of his career. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously I came out um, all guns blazing on my first year. I managed to win when my first year on tour and obviously coming up through Euro Pro Challenge Tour, first win on, on, my, on my first year on tour. So obviously at that trajectory, it's quite hard to keep keep that going. So obviously there was a, there was a bit of a bit of a bit of a downfall but we managed to manage to turn turn things around and then yeah one uh was it two years ago now in portugal and um yeah the game the game's feeling good um yeah there's been been quite a few changes which is what you kind of need to sort of freshen up um freshen up the game after after a few years if you're, if you're struggling a little bit you might definitely need to change change a few things so um but no it's feeling good that full finish at Dubai Invitational was great. Obviously, it's hard to know how you're going to get on once you get back from uh, sort of six or seven weeks off. So, yeah, it's been going well. When you get to that elite level and, you know, it's it, it becomes that much harder, I would imagine, to find areas to improve. Where is your sort of focus directed? Is it is it more about how you apply yourself mentally in difficult situations? Where are you trying to kind of make gains, Jordan? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone out here is trying to trying to find the the tiniest gains possible so obviously a lot lot of guys now are looking at the stats um stats are driving everything now you can see that they use they've been using them for the last few rider cups with pairings and figuring out who who's gonna match who better and um what courses suit suit other players better so i think a lot of people have, are paying money into that and, and paying a lot of attention to it and that's where i think you find your be able to see uh, very easily where your, where your little gains are, whether it's putting short game, missing greens left to a left pin, that, that sort of thing. So it goes into sort of minute details. So have you got a guy in your team that analyzes your specific data? Well, so I, I use um, Eduardo Molinari's um, stats database that he's basically created himself with all his stat collecting that he's done throughout his uh, his career so it's very very impressive um and then he'll he'll send a report every every couple of weeks couple of months or at the end of the year whenever whenever you ask for it so um yeah you go down to the real sort of nth degree of every shot and well every shot you played that season that's amazing and then are you able to match as you say that that data up with golf courses that are likely to suit you for example you know, all being well in your game and you're hitting the ball nicely, are you able to identify courses that you're likely to do well on in a given calendar? Yeah, there's there's definitely somewhat true with that, with that that sort of thing. So, depending on, I don't know if you're like me, like a strong my, my driving sort of the strength of my game. So obviously, if there's a course where driving is like the main factor, then uh, yeah, obviously they say this this course will suit you better than than another course. So. Um, yeah, but we do get stats through um, from previous years of that course that we're going to play. So then we can look back at them and see how we've played a certain hole over over the certain years, and, and maybe we need to change the tactic on that hole or if, if that tactic's working. So yeah, this covers covers everything. Right, and and what about like the, the mental aspect of the game, Jordan? Are you, do you talk to a sports psychologist? How do you approach that? Yeah, so I've never never had a, a sports psychologist until 
um, sort of mid- middle of last year, mid- middle end of last year, um, I took on a guy called uh, Carl Steptoe, um, and he's worked with Ollie Wilson. Uh, he's now at Tottenham. Uh, he's worked for North Hants Cricket, Leicester Football Team. Um, so yeah, he's he's a great guy. He's just a nice. He's just a guy that you can sort of talk to after the round, get everything off your chest. Um, and then he's helped a lot with um, sort of processes on the course because um, he's he's one that says you can't get rid of thoughts and feelings. Like it's it's impossible to take those things away. So it's just how you deal with those thoughts and feelings. So yeah, he's, he's been a great great aspect to the team. So in what in, in a scenario where you know you're under pressure or or things are getting yeah. close, you're contending in a in a tournament on a Sunday. Uh, mm-hmm. Is is there like a kind of blueprint for you now to kind of are there visual tools to help you kind of get into a zone where you can kind of block everything out? Yeah, so kind of when when I play my best golf, it's on it's on autopilot, so I'm not thinking too much. I'm just stepping up there, sticking to my game plan, and just just firing away. So um, a lot of it is how yeah how 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 you deal with sort of under pressure. You're, you're thinking or. Oh, Maybe I don't fancy this T-shirt, or or there's a bit of trouble down the left, that sort of thing. So you're you're, you're thinking them, but it's just how you how you react to them is, is is the main main thing that we've we've worked on, and it's it's definitely helped. Your kind of history of winning tournaments all the way through the ranks, Jordan. I mean, you started on Euro Pro, and you mm. came up. You basically just completed each season <laughs> on the, the particular tours that you were on, and you know we see so many mm. great players get stuck on those lower levels great ball strikers for whatever reason they just can't quite figure out how to progress through the ranks and like for you it was like you won the order of merit on the euro pro you you subsequently won the order of merit on the challenge tour winning the season finale and then and then you won in your first season on the dp world tour at that point were you thinking to yourself this this pro golf malarkey is actually quite straightforward because i think you finished ninth in your very first major as well <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did um, at Quail Hollow. Yeah, I mean, it was all a bit of a whirlwind. To be fair, I mean, over over those three years, I went through three different tours and and won on all of them. So it was all. I wasn't really at, at, at that at that stage. You're not really worried about anything. You're just going out there playing golf. Everything's coming easy. Yeah, I wasn't really worried about missing cuts financially. I wasn't worried. I wasn't worried about my golf game uh, it was just everything came easy um so i was one of those one of those lucky few where i didn't have too many worries to to think about so when when you don't have much to think about golf's golf's easy <laughs> yeah indeed when you look back on it was there a win or a, a week in your career that kind of signified a bit of a turning point for you yeah it was what one that literally just popped popped into my head once once you said that was on EuroPro, funny enough, and it was the final event of the year, Desert Springs, and I needed to win to get my Challenge Tour card, and I I had no clue, thankfully, that I uh, that I had to do that, and I was in a playoff with Daniel Gavins, Aaron Rye, and yeah, I, I had to win to get my Challenge Tour card, and and thankfully I did, and then got on the Challenge Tour card, uh, got on the Challenge Tour, won in my second event I think in, in, in Egypt and then it sort of progressed from there Wow and imagine if you'd known that how it could have maybe altered well, things that's, that's what I'm saying yeah if I'd known that then anything could have happened <laughs> Interesting and it was those two guys Daniel Gavin's 
had the craziest last hole win I think I've ever seen on the DP World Tour last year. He found the water twice and still won. On the, just yeah. on the, where you're playing this week at Alhambra. And Aaron Rye's done well on the PGA Tour, hasn't he? I mean, he, he's done great. I mean, he won the Scottish Open and just taking off from there he's, he's he's a great guy I think no one has a bad word to say about him he's one of the nicest blokes out here and yeah he's just a great golfer last year Jordan was the, I think it was the first year that you'd played in three of the four major championships and you finished um, you had a beautiful round of was it 60 67 final rounds at the LA Country Club four under I think it was to, to finish in a tie for 20th at the US Open that must have been a heck of an experience uh, I was watching on TV. I, there was a lot said and written about the the, the crowds that week and, and the atmosphere or the lack of typical US Open atmosphere. But how was that event looking back on it? I mean, it, it was incredible. I mean, the, the golf course was was immaculate and it was tough. It was hard. It was quick. The rough was brutal. But then you got off the beaten track and it was all rough and rugged, rugged and sandy. And yeah, it was just, it was just one of those courses that just sort of suit my eye and as soon as I got there I loved it um, but I knew I knew it was going to be a challenge from the get-go because once we turned up and, and played a few holes you were just like anyone, anyone breaking par here is, is doing well so I mean being in LA as well and yeah the, the crowd the crowds are great they just there was just a few holes where they couldn't get close enough right um, to, to feel that atmosphere which was a bit disappointing but I mean there was still tens of thousands of people there so it's still an incredible week is it as brutally difficult as we all suppose it is i've played a couple of us open courses and uh, you know not in tournament condition and winged Mm. foot i mean i think they always keep that really tough the greens are so quick you know it it just magnifies every error does it yeah yeah i mean they get the rough up off the fairways a rough up around the greens um they get the greens running as quick as they can so I think LA Country Club, I think they're about 13 on the stint and a, and a lot of them are, are quite slopey. So yeah, getting get the wrong side of them and uh, it was it was a challenge getting up and down or, or two pound from dif- distance. So um, yeah, it was just great to put in a good good four rounds and, and finish off the week with, with a really good round. Aside from the difficulty of the course, you know, because you know, the majors are set up just that bit harder. What, what's the biggest challenge, Jordan, during a major championship week? Is it something to do with focus? Is it uh, preparation maybe? What what do you find particularly kind of difficult about a major? I think it's going there and knowing knowing deep down that you that you can you can do well, that you can perform because I mean there's times where where you go there and and you're a you're a you're a small fish in a big pond and no one knows who you are and you don't feel like you should be there. Um but I think I think that's that's the hardest bit, just being there and knowing that you're good enough, you're good enough to compete, you're good enough to play at these golf courses with these these world beater players. So yeah, I, th- I think that's the hardest bit. Yeah, is there some some degree of imposter syndrome? Maybe even if you've won on yeah. tour, uh, you're you're still kind of pinching yourself because it's it's kind of a boyhood dream that you're living out. And, you know, these guys that have been across the court, I always feel with like veterans of the DP World Tour, they sort of stroll around like they own the place. They sort of have this air of assurance about them, um, which I guess just you have to come, that comes with a lot of experience and many years under the belt. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you do You do see those those guys. I guess it's all sort of mental as well, just going there knowing that you can win. Um, and then you walk around with your with your shoulders held high, and 
yeah, I think I think that's a, a lot, quite quite a bit of the difference between some of the really top players and the and the guys trying to work their way up is just knowing that they're they're good enough to win and, and turn up to events and going, yeah, I, I, I can win this week. Was there a particular player, Jordan, when you started playing in really big tournaments that you got paired with that kind of visually impressed you? You remember and you remember thinking, wow, this guy is something else. It's always been been Rory for me. Um, so I I played with him in South Africa. Um, when was that? I think I think that was early on in my 2017 season. Um, so I was really really chucked in at the uh, at the deep end there, and I think the whole of South Africa turned out to this event. It was insane. There was so many people, and I, I I'd never played golf in front of that many people. And obviously I'd, I was playing with Rory, so it's pretty. Um, pretty intense but he he was yeah he's actually a really nice guy he was easy enough to talk to and then once I got got the first couple of holes out of the way um the the, the nerves do uh, do settle down and then you can get into your get into your stride and, and get going so yeah I'd, I'd, I'd probably have to say him because I mean any, anyone watching him just can see that he, make, he makes it look really really easy he does seem to hit shots that I don't really see anyone else hit and that's mm. kind of obviously there's the the driving and I still can't figure out how he hits it as far as he does, but uh, there's obviously that element to his game. But there's there's the sort of prone. He has an ability to do something outrageous that you know you you don't really see too many people, even your Scotty Schefflers and your Brooks Kepkers. You don't often see yeah. them do it. I mean, you just look at last week. I mean, I think he only just made the cut by a shot or two, and then true Rory fashion he shoots nine under on Saturday and then bumps him right up um, to a couple of shots off the lead and then goes on and wins so yeah you know you know to never write off Rory what do you make of the the amateur the 20 year old Nick Dunlap winning on the PGA Tour mm. um, how you know having come through the amateur ranks and, and obviously he's a college player it's a bit different in the US like we were chatting to yeah. Zane Scotland and he was saying well they're almost kept apart from the from the regular tour events to the extent where if, if they were exposed a bit more often you might see more amateurs win PGA yeah. Tour events but nonetheless I mean to beat that field as a 20 year old is pretty prodigious isn't it I mean it's yeah it's it's you don't you don't see it very often, do you? I think the last time was uh, was nineteen ninety one, I think, with um, with Phil Muxon. So, I mean, it's it's pretty incredible. It's, it's obviously one of those weeks where he's gone out there and he's obviously playing good um, with the scores that he's shooting. But just one of those weeks where he didn't really have anything to worry about. He didn't didn't have to worry about um, sort of making the cut or keeping his tour card or anything like. That. It was just one of those weeks where he could go out there and shoot the lights out of it and. Yeah, just go go for every pin and and and, and see what he can do, and it, it worked off. It, it's but got to be slightly gutting for him that he doesn't get a penny of that one point five million dollar winner's <laughs> check. <laughs> yeah, um, I think there'd be a lot of people that would be very very uh, very annoyed with that, but I think he's pretty happy that now he's uh, he's set for life. I think. Yeah, I mean, in it. So what you're saying, in a weird kind of way, is that it's almost easier he could freewheel it. Whereas if he was a pro yeah. in his rookie season, trying to trying to make FedEx Cup points, trying to earn his way up the PJ Tour rankings, he'd have a he'd be playing with a lot more pressure on his shoulders. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you could, even if he was leading going into that final round, if he he he, he was always he, he would always have in the back of his mind like, oh, I'd, I need to finish so far up the leaderboard to keep my tour card. Whereas being out to, he's just like, we can just go for it, just go and enjoy it, go have fun, and and see see what happens by the end of the day and. 
it, it obviously showed and uh, went on and, and, and won it. Are young players getting better, do you think, Jordan? Uh, there was, Definitely. I think Phil Phil made the tweet, oh, he, he posted on, on X that uh, I think the group of players, Ludwig, uh, this guy, Nick Dunlap, a guy called Gordon Sargent, who's still an amateur, yeah. talented players, they, they all seem to hit the ball yeah. just insane distances. Um, is that yeah. is, is there something to that is there a new kind of biomechanic explanation for that or is it just guys are getting better younger 100% I think it's a combination of all of them I think obviously sports science and biomechanics are getting better so people have access to figuring out how to hit the ball further and, and how to swing the club faster so and I think um, I think a lot of, lot of people are now teaching guys just to hit it as far as they can and sort of rein it in from, from then and you, you, you can see it now a lot lot more of the younger guys are just hit, starting to hit it further and further and further and I think that's that's going to carry on because sports science is getting better um, so yeah I think there's going to be a lot more younger guys on tour and, and coming up through the college ranks or even sort of the ranks over in, over in Europe there's a lot of scrutiny as well on on like club head speed, ball speeds to the point where all the pro tracer mm-hmm. stuff is kind of showing exactly how hard everyone's hitting the ball. Obviously with this ball rollback, I know that's a few years away, but that's going to reduce the driving distances a little bit for the top players. But is is ball speed and like speed training a part of your kind of thinking? Is it something that you is it something you've maybe not messed around with too much because you're you're happy with where you're at or, or what's your approach to it yeah um, I, I, I haven't messed around with it too much I did I did try I, w- I did have a little period where I had a, a longer driver um, that definitely helped I think I gained club head speed and I was carrying it a good sort of 15 yards further so that definitely helped but I've, I haven't messed around with it too much I'm, I'm pretty happy with how, how it is it's, it's, it's one of the one of the strengths of my game so I don't really want to want to fiddle around with it too much but I did I did do a, a bit, a bit of street, uh, a speed training over the winter. So every rain session, just at the end, I'd get driver out and I'd have 15 balls where I have to hit them as hard as I could, obviously, um, in five minutes. And obviously back home, it's a bit, bit tougher. Obviously, being at what was it, zero degrees, yeah. rain and wind <laughs> and all the different layers on it. But it's, it's definitely paid off because I came out here. And I did speed sessions out here in Dubai before Dubai Invitational, and I was—it was the fastest that I'd ever swung it, and the highest ball speed that I ever had. So, I mean, just just that sort of 10, 15 minutes at the end of each uh, rain session, I was just hitting the ball as hard as I could, um, and then my club head speed just for my normal drives went up by a couple of miles an hour. So it's, it's definitely helped. Um, but I mean, that's, what are that's, you looking? What are you trying to get to? Like one seventy-five, one eighty? What what would be a really fast speed for you? So the, the, the fastest that I had was 185 ball speed and 125 clubhead speed, but that's me just absolutely <laughs> swinging out my boots. I mean, any harder and I'd, I could fall over. So, um, I mean, from there I can rein it back a bit and then on course I'm looking for about one, 120 mile hour clubhead speed. So that's what I'm trying to get to. I think probably around 18, 19 the last, last couple of weeks. So, I mean, it's... Um, it's getting there and obviously we're always looking for these extra few yards that we can hit it so I mean that's that's the the extreme that I'm going to go to to try and hit it further I'm not going to be 
trying to do all these long dry things or trying to bulk up too much so, yeah, yeah you're not gonna be on the protein shakes like like bryson um, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, when you look back on your first win on the, the the well the european tour as it was then the dp world tour the porsche european open jordan what what are the vivid memories that stand out six years later um the, the playoff holes the playoff holes with uh with alex levy um and, and the 18th hole in, in, in general play. So, yeah, it's just that 18th hole because obviously we played it in, in, uh, in normal play, 72nd hole, and I, I had to birdie it to get into the playoff, which which I did. Um, and then, yeah, the two the two playoff holes with, with Alex. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's that's, that's the, the first thing that comes into come into mind with that, that event. What a way to win it, huh? In a playoff. Yeah. Your first DP yeah, World was- Tour event. Yeah, it was it was pretty incredible. Um, yeah, just uh, just just the way it all all, all played out um, and do it and that that sort of style. My first year was yeah was pretty pretty incredible. And you won at thirty under par in Portugal mm. in twenty twenty two. I read <laughs> yeah. that it was a tour record, apart from the fact that they had preferred lies on the fairways. Yeah, I know. I was I was gutted once I uh, once I obviously found that out, but. Yeah, never mind. Eh? <laughs> Thirty under Jordan. That's crazy yeah. golf. That is insane scoring. Was that because uh, I did get a caught up with Tyrrell Hatton, and he said that when he won the Alfred Dunhill in 2017, he he had a premonition that he was going to win a long way, you know, well, a long way back from actually doing it before mm. it was comfortable for him. Have, does does that do you relate to that? Have you ever had like a a feeling or on one of your two wins on the DP World Tour that this was going to be your week? Not, not really. No, but you, you know, leading up to, leading up to, well, for me, leading up to that event, I knew I was playing well, so I knew that I was gonna contend because Portugal, the course there, sort of suits how I play. You got to drive it well. Um, the course was set up a little bit easier, so we, were, well, for me anyway, I was hitting driver on every hole possible. Um, yeah, I think you, you get those feelings that obviously you're playing well going into certain events, and they just sort of you just fancy it. I don't, I don't know if I felt like I don't know deep down if I was like I'm going to win this week, but I felt like I was going to contend. Mm. So I guess the, the the ultimate kind of catching the lightning in the bottle is just basically fancying it more often than than not. You know, like getting to that point where you have that same feeling in more yeah. weeks than not because obviously we all we all know that golfers have the worst win percentage in all of sport <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's um if, if you could predict that then we'd all be uh be very rich people I think. But, um, <laughs> yeah you, you just get on these runs where it it comes easy to you and you're swinging it well you're hitting it great you're hitting the shots that you want to you're you're holding the putt so it just came came in a period of, of good play what does the future look like for you, Jordan, um, in terms of what you'd be happy with this year? And, and I know you'd love to play in the Masters, I'm sure. What, what, what are the next kind of big check marks to kind of tick off for you? Yeah, the, um, the, two, the two that I've got in mind is the Masters and the Ryder Cup next year. So they're, they're the two main ones I want to, want to get into and, and, and do well. So, yeah, I mean the game's feeling good yeah I'm, I'm feeling good I'm, I'm in a good place so um, yeah you, know, you never know so we'll just try out, go out there and and try our best to, to, to get into the Masters and um, try and get into the team for the Ryder Cup next year How inspired were you by what happened at the Ryder Cup in Rome? I mean it was it was incredible 
yeah, just to see the guys that obviously I know really, really well and get along with, just to see them go out there and just pretty much dominate. It was just incredible to see. So you want the Masters and the Ryder Cup for 2025. Uh, do you, and Justin Thomas, he writes all his goals down on, on his iPhone. Mm. Do you do you have a, a journal or do you, do you scribble things down? I used to do that. Um, but I've kind of stopped doing it because I'd reach my goal and then be like, now, now what? What's, what's the next thing? So <laughs> yeah. I, it was almost just, just ticking a box. So yeah, I, I don't really tend to do that now. Um, so yeah, it, it, it worked for a little period, but it's, it's not, not the right thing for me. But those are two things that I'm trying to trying to aim for. Well, I suppose it encourages those kind of artificial peaks and troughs. You know, once you get a peak, mm. you're, you're inevitably going to follow that with a bit of a, a dip because that's that's human nature, isn't it? Rather be try and maintain a state of equilibrium the whole time, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and obviously, if I didn't didn't reach those goals, then obviously you're you're a little bit disappointed. But at the same time, you're just a bit like, what's 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 the next lot of goals? So. It was a bit, yeah. It was it was nice to reach those goals, but then afterwards it was literally a split second. Then you're like, what's what's the next one? So, yeah, we'll see. Uh, we'll see see how uh, how things pan out. Well, Jordan, the good news is that everyone that Zane and I have had on this podcast has won a DP World Tour event, either directly after we've had them on the podcast or shortly before <laughs> we've had them on the podcast. So, I think the future is looking good for you. Well, well, ho- hopefully I can, uh, I can I can keep that run going. That, yeah, very nice. Listen, really appreciate it. It's great to see you again, Jordan. And uh, no you know, it's been enjoyed following your progress, and and obviously wishing you all the best for 2024, and and uh, hoping to see you on that Ryder Cup team. Yeah, lovely. Cheers, cheers. Thanks for thanks for having me again. Yeah, great to have Jordan Smith on the First Tee podcast with the DP World Tour. Of course, we wish him all the best for 2024. And, and just I want to pick out one interesting thing that that we were talking about there, Zane. That, Struck me um, as, as certainly a, a good, very savvy business venture by a certain Eduardo Molinari. But an increasing number of golfers are now turning to the data-obsessed Italian, who we know played a big role in the European success at the Ryder Cup with Luke Donald. He's just been appointed, actually, a vice-captain. I think the first vice-captain that Luke appointed for the 2025 Ryder Cup. So we know how much Luke values his knowledge and his I, I guess um, experience with the data, but it's amazing how he's now become a resource for other players. Yeah, that, it's really interesting. I mean, I know that Matt Fitzpatrick also uses him. It's it's interesting that he's still playing. He's still an active player, yet he's helping other players that he competes against. I mean, that is one part. But in, in the other, in the other side, it's actually a genius kind of retirement plan because it means that he's he's carrying on. You know, and and also he's not having to rely on his own golf. To have you know have an income coming in, and and Eduardo has a real passion for that side of things. You know, he's, he's well educated. You know, I've known Eduardo since we were, I think maybe fourteen or fifteen years old. We had a England under 16s versus Italy under 16s. Him and Francesco came over. Uh, we played at Radcliffe on Trent in Nottingham, a little golf course up there. And you know, these two Italian brothers here you were know, just fantastic golfers, completely different characters. And it's interesting because you would think that Francesco would be the like the numbers, you know, because he, you know, he, he just, he's a bit more, he plays golf in a more straightforward fashion. You know, the way that he talks is a bit more, you know, just monotone and straightforward. Yet Eduardo is much more like flamboyant the way that, you know, he goes about things. I've, I've watched, I've watched some land game with, with, uh, with Eduardo and he shouts at the television, you know, it's so much emotion is attached to it. Yeah, he's like so good with numbers and, and he's found a system which is like basically removing emotion 
from how you make decisions in golf and make them matter of fact. And he's obviously very, and he's just very, very good at it. You know, he's got major champions under under his under his wing, right, a winning Ryder Cup team, which is obviously that that would have been a, a massive project to get all those numbers and stats of all the different players. And then they even do stats while they're in play to make decisions in case they have to change something. Yeah, absolutely. It's genius, really. That's been one of the biggest leaps forward in professional sport, hasn't it? You know, you see it in football all the time. Data analysts, it's, uh, I guess it's something that's come really from maybe the world of finance that has kind of landed in sport where it's that much harder to, to seek an edge or gain an edge over your opponents. I mean, when you turn pro, for example, I can't imagine data was was ever really discussed or, or pondered over. Well, no, I mean, uh, fairways, greens, amount of putts, scrambles, that was like kind of, uh, that was the advance that was as far as it went and that was like oh you look at stats that was like a big thing whereas now we know that it, there's so many holes just those stats that don't tell the story at all and it was it wasn't a thing you know you just you were a good player you weren't a good player you know some people could hit the ball far and they did they played a certain way and everyone was guessing like really guessing and some people just stumbled across playing well and that was the way it went whereas now it's like a blueprint you know they know exactly what makes a player play well and if a person has hits the ball a certain distance or is a certain type of golfer then you need to play this strategy but if you're that type of golfer you have to play this strategy according to the numbers and it, it's actually it, it does remove a little bit of the romanticism out of the game because uh, because decisions don't go on emotion now yeah, what would Seve have made are. of all this you know conjuring shots from nowhere I just mean, getting yeah. into trouble and yeah, exactly. whipping a big sharp hook around the tree or whatever it may be. I mean, yeah, he he, he made he made golf off of off of a decision which he made when he went completely against the grain and he took on shots you're not supposed to take on. And Tiger, to a certain extent, did exactly the same, didn't he? Just hit shots you're not supposed to do that. You're not, you're not supposed to take on that shot, but they would do it and they'd pull it off, and that's what is it's kind of why a lot of us even play golf because we've seen those guys do that. Maybe if Eduardo would come through then, he would have killed the game for us. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and yet he's actually benefiting from, I think, the current generation's real obsession with this. And it's only going one way, that's there's for sure. There's so much money in golf. There's so much money in golf that you, you, just, you, cannot, you, just, you just cannot come in and just have a little go. Like, you, need to, like, you, know, there's, you need to know, if I do this, this is what it pays me back. This is where I'm going to spend my time. Before we wrap up this episode, got to get your reaction to Nick Dunlap. I mean, we were chatting during our coverage of the, the Hero Dubai Desert Classic when he was on the brink of making history. He would then go on to make history at the Amex, as you mentioned, for the first time since Phil Mickelson back in 1991, an American amateur winning on the PGA Tour, any amateur for that matter, winning on the PGA Tour. And I, I suppose unsurprisingly, he has not been able to resist the temptation and, and fair play to him. The, the riches on offer for this man and the opportunities on offer, it's too big a carrot to turn down because as he said, going into that Amex tournament, being a pro was the furthest thing from his mind. Now he's faced with, given his win, an opportunity to play in all of the kind of special signature PGA Tour events th throughout this season. Invites galore. I mean, a chance to make a lot of money to, to recoup the $1.5 million first prize fund that he missed out on at, due to his amateur status. Yes, it's, it's <laughs> an amazing story. Just, just hearing that, he wasn't, you know, he was thinking that pro golf is miles away because some of these guys come in and you think they're turning pro in a, in a month or two months and this is like a warm up for them. But to, you know, to be a sophomore and be not even be thinking about turning pro and then now it's being thrust to the, to the, uh, the top of the game. Uh, basically, it's unbelievable, isn't it? Really, it's just, and, he's obviously, and, and the other part is he can obviously do it because it's not a matter of like, oh, I wonder if he can. He's there by right. He's not. 
He's not asking for invites. He's not asking for opportunities. He's played and made his own opportunities, which is also a stunning thing. I did actually saw a stat that he's gone from um, outside the top 4,000 in the world up to number 68 in the world in, in one fell swoop, which was probably a bit, to, a bit of a dismay of some of the tour players. But the guy came out, got his opportunity. He's taken it. And yes, he decided to pull out, I think, the Farmers this week. That's right. Um, he's going to make his debut at the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am in yeah. uh, early next month. So he's earned an exemption on the PGA Tour through 2026 and an entrance into each of the high-money limited field signature events in 2024 with his victory on Sunday. Couldn't go any better to win early in the year, which basically means you're getting three seasons out of it. Oh, He's off and running now. Off and running. And, and you're backing him for a very successful career. I mean, that goes without saying. We have seen young players come up and then fail to sustain those early heights, but... He seems to be mentally how he closed it closed it out at the Amex on the weekend. You know, he seems to be the full package of obviously a very good player, but also he's got the mental game to go with it. Yeah, I mean, from what we've seen, it all looks fantastic. You know, the next part is how does he deal with it now? Because he's come from he's he's come from a, all the good players, all these college players come from a system. They come from a system of uh, being at school and having uh, being around a team, having a team environment in terms of other players, a team that they work with in their fitness and their coaching. And you know their support staff. You know they they see their families. You know as and when they don't play that often in college. All of a sudden now you thrust into almost being. You probably think he has to play every week on the PGA Tour. So he's got quite a lot of the golf side of it. It's probably the easiest part of all this. You know hitting the drive, hitting the making the cut, hitting the seven iron approach shot, knocking the putting. That's that's the easiest part for him. It's going to be all these other things around it. Because now you've not got that team around you. You've got to almost you've got to go make his own team. It'll be interesting to see. Be interesting to see how he's managed, who he's signed with, you know, and how that is that is managed. You know, you kind of say to him, "Well, look, actually, maybe go back and practice with your team. You know, whatever whatever you did to get here, try, you've got to try and recreate that." Because now the temptation is to be a loner, and that and that is the mm. issue for most most young professionals that come out of the college game or from playing for their national team they're around they get told where to go they're around other their friends and their golfers and there's quite you know there are you know it's quite a social situation all of a sudden when that's all removed and then you go into the PJ tour and no one cares about you no the other players don't want to talk to you because they've got their own business to be getting on with it can become a really lonely place and I've seen that in the past there was a guy called Ty Tryon who was an amazing golfer got his tour card at 16 years old but all of a sudden as a 17 year old playing the following year he said it was just a lonely place. He said he didn't, didn't yeah. enjoy being out on tour. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how everything pans out. One thing's for sure, he's going to be an, a, a great narrative, a great storyline to follow. Nick Dunlap in his um, what will now be his maiden season as a professional golfer, as a PGA Tour player, out of nowhere following that historic win over the weekend as well. As for the DP World Tour, the international series continues. Uh, we're leaving the UAE after the Ras Al Khaimah Championship, heading, staying in the Middle East with tournaments in Bahrain and the uh, Commercial Bank Qatar Masters as well before heading over to Africa to Kenya for the magical Kenya Open and then down to South Africa for a couple of tournaments as we go through March on the international series on the DP World Tour so looking forward to staying across those Zane in future episodes listen next time you get an invite to play with a top 10 golfer on the planet give your old pal a call okay we need a game. Yeah, that's, that's, that, that probably would have intimidated me if I brought you along. Well, been, oh, this guy shot two under. But, no, he yeah. might have refused to play on the grounds that he couldn't put up with me for four no, and a half hours. He, 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 he likes you. I did talk to him about it. He likes you. So oh, yeah, oh, really? Oh, you'll, wow. get, you'll get the call. Wow. <laughs> I won't hold my breath, Zane. I'm not going to be waiting by the phone on that one. Listen, continue to play your good golf. 
I want to hear an update on your comeback to a tour near you sometime soon in 2024, okay? Oh, you never know. You never know. Watch this space on so many things. Right, that's that's it. That's all we've got time for on this episode of The First Tee with the DP World Tour from myself, Robbie, and from Zane as well. We'll catch you next time. The First Tee.